Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is Monday Minute episode number 182. Monday Minute episodes are shorter and more informal episodes where we answer your listener questions. Today we have a special guest, Dioni. Our friend Dioni is an absolute mule deer slayer, very, very experienced, knowledgeable, passionate, and successful when it comes to all things mule deer hunting. And we had some listener questions to do with mule deer and thought, well, why not get Dioni on here? He can give better answers and more context and has more experience than either Steve or myself do. So I'm excited to dive into these questions with Dioni today. But before we get into that, it is July of 2023. It's the third as this episode is released and it's a new month. And since it is a new month, we have a new giveaway here in the summer of 2023. We're doing giveaways each and every month. We just wrapped up June, and our giveaway was the SIG Zulu 6 Image Stabilizing Binoculars. And congrats to the winner of those binoculars, Peter. He's been contacted, and we're going to ship those binoculars off to him. For this new month of July of 2023, we're giving away a cool ultralight insulation piece from our friends at Outdoor Vitals. This piece is called the Ventus Hoodie. It's something that Steve and I have quite a bit of experience with. It is a synthetic insulated hoodie. It's a pullover and it's ultralight, weighs less than 10 ounces, and is deceivingly, deceivingly warm for the weight. Go check it out. You can get all the details on the Ventus and then also enter the giveaway to win the Ventus by going to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast, or there is a link in the show description. If you entered last month's giveaway, you'll still want to go ahead and enter again for this month's giveaway for the Outdoor Vitals Ventus. Thanks again to Outdoor Vitals for offering this piece for us to give away. And thank you listeners for supporting the show, engaging with it, and go check that out if you want to get entered to thank you for your support of the show. Hit pause and do that right now, then come back. Let's get into some mule deer questions with our good friend, Dioni. Today I have my friend Dioni on the line, who is a mule deer slayer, uh, and we had some mule deer questions, so I thought of calling you up, Dioni. Thanks for joining, man. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Thanks for, uh, thanks for thinking of me. Yeah, we were recording this on the evening. You're on the road doing some training for work. It's definitely not our our normal recording, but uh, yeah, I saw these questions and wanted to get. I was personally like, man, I want to hear what Dioni has to say. So that's why we're doing it. Um, you, I don't like. Uh, I don't remember any podcasts you've been on, but I know you have. I think you were part of a expert roundtable series, or no, How to Hunt Mule Deer. We actually did with you one of those. Yeah, I've been, uh, I think I've only been on the XO one once. Uh, you guys have talked about me a lot. Usually when you're bringing <laughs> up people who pack too much stuff and need an unreasonably big backpack. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's been most of my XO, XO, uh, mentions. So that said now, what do you think after running the K4? Cause you've been, you run prototypes and stuff all the time, but is the 7200 too big for you or do you actually like it? It's not too big, but it's, it's definitely a big backpack. Um, I think my favorite size XO goes back to like the 5,500 and Uh then it's, it's grown and, uh, and the 5,000 now is just such a functional bag. I I wish it was a tiny bit bigger, but it's so functional that, that I think the 5,000 is a sweet spot as far as, uh, 
size and features. Yeah. Um, but the, the 7,200 is it's, if, if you can't fit it in that thing, you don't need it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's big. I had that uh, for part of the season last year. And then last minute, I think I called you or Pat and, and had you guys swap me out. Cause it was just like, it was, it was such a behemoth for day hunts. Gotcha. But cool, man. Well, let's dive into these questions. Uh, they were sent over by a podcast listener whose name is Hunter. So Hunter, thanks for sending these. Um, I'll just read some of his email. He says, the past few years, I've hunted in Idaho and fairly remote areas with limited access for deer and elk. Uh, I tend to hunt higher elevations and big terrain before the bucks start migrating to lower elevations, and I've had some luck finding deer. He said, a couple of years ago, I harvested a really nice buck in a really hard to glass area, Uh, and then he kind of included a photo, which is a great buck. He says, however, this year... He plans to hunt central Utah and in late October. The unit that they're looking uh, to hunt is different than what he's used to in Idaho. So this unit in Utah has more road access, not as much remote areas. It says there's still some areas with high elevations, um, but they're more vast instead of spaced out peaks. My question is, do I use the same strategy for finding deer like I did in Idaho? Or how do you think it might differ? So we have some other questions, but let's start there. What's your first thoughts, Yuna? So a couple things, because you, you forwarded me that email, and I just want to say that was a really nice buck that the guy killed. Um, but there's a couple things I want to unpack that he mentioned, and, and he highlighted more so about the elevation and the remoteness of his other spot, but he, he hinted at something in there that I think is really, impub- uh, really important about how that area was really hard to glass. And I think that's the important thing to kind of key in on because most of the places I've hunted, I mean, I've hunted some pretty remote places that are that are tough to get to, but anymore, I think the, the back country is getting pretty busy and, and that hard to glass component of what he said, I think was maybe as important or more important than the, than the elevation or remoteness. And when I was reading through this, thinking of the, the, the best way to respond to it, I think that's really the key is, is not necessarily even, even hard to glass or, or remoteness, but like what's a good surrogate for remoteness in an area that has a lot of roads and is more visible. And I think that's the thing that I've tried to key on in on in the past is like, okay, well, if, if remote's not available or, or remote's maybe even not beneficial, cause there's a lot of other people that are doing the remote thing. It's like, what, what's a good stand in for being remote. And that might be, that might be a spot that is right next to the road that has everything that a deer could want, but there's like no practical place to pull out. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. not a reasonable place for anybody to stop and look, but uh, but it's got all the things a deer might want. There might be trucks going by all day long, but nobody ever stops and gets out. You know, so I think I think you've got to apply that lens to different opportunities in an area and figure out like, okay, what's what's gonna suffice and and give these deer uh, some semblance of solitude, but that may not mean that people aren't there. It's just that people aren't you know, operating effectively in, in whatever that space is, be it that they just drive by or that it's, uh, you know, in the middle of a trail with no great vantage point. So you have to hike down a hill and then glass back up, you know, because the deer may be living under the trail or, uh, you know, whatever that opportunity may be. It's like there's a lot of surrogates for remoteness. And that's that's what a guy needs to look for in those kinds of units, I think. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, super high level at least theoretically the reason deer and other animals love remote areas is 
you know, safety, security, they're not messed with. So mm-hmm. yeah, as, as, as that goes away, as remoteness goes away, or as there's pressure in quote unquote remote areas, how else are they going to find that safety and security? And obviously still have what they need from a, you know, habitat perspective. So it's just a good way to look at it. I'm curious on like narrow down a little bit more on, you know, he mentioned hard to glass areas. And I know you've talked about that. I think you talked about that. I did just look up the episode when we had you on for the how to hunt mule deer series. We did, I think, seven episodes in that series, which was in 2020. The episode with you uh, was podcast 234. So I'll leave a link to that. But to narrow down on glassing strategies for areas that are quote unquote hard to glass um what what are like what are some glassing strategies in terms of picking apart that type of country and then part of my head just goes to how do you know when to like stay patient and really know whether that deer is there or not versus at some point going man i feel like i've pick this apart as much as I can pick this apart. I'm just not seeing it. Like when do you pick up and move type thing? I mean, that depends a lot on a lot of things, you know, some units, obviously this is kind of prefaced off of central Idaho general units where you're hunting October 10th to the 24th or say the 30th. So like under, under those circumstances, um, you know, have you seen a deer there before? Obviously we're, you know, kind of predicating this off of you have some, some idea of where a deer should be or where deer specifically is. And then there's a lot of other things that go into that is, you know, our last year, for instance, it was incredibly dry in, uh, in a lot of different places I hunt in central Idaho. So areas that it would historically hold deer through mid October were a total ghost town up in the high country. So, you know, you, you have to take into account things like, is is the feed still in season the, the types of things that you're anticipating them to be eating through mid-october are they still available or are they switched over to different food sources for for whatever reason um you know is, is it is it far enough into october where where the deer might have moved there's just there's there's a lot to to go into that and, and mm-hmm. um unfortunately in a unit you're not familiar with you're going to go into that blind not knowing those things and it takes years to to build up that background knowledge, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I, you just have to take your best read off of whatever the area offers you. Uh, are there still deer there? Um, I mean, if, if all of the deer that you were historically seeing are gone, there's a good chance the, the buck that you're after may, may also be gone. But um, in, in my experience, anyways, as long as those, their, their needs are still met in that area, deer are very reluctant to move. Um until until either weather or the rut starts to move them um they just typically tighten up their routine of whatever it was they were doing and get harder to see gotcha what's kind of practical glassing techniques strategies etc on more broken country that's harder to glass i mean obviously I i can think of many things to rattle off but i'm curious for you like what do you think that are some mistakes that guys make how are they not glassing effectively in that type of country i think the the thing i hear people do that makes me cringe often is, is they they really focus in on on first thing super early in the morning and then and then last last hour of evening and and it seems like that's when when people put the most effort into it 
Um, and a lot of times it's, it's not glamorous. It's just posting up and glassing all day long and just being diligent. Um, there's been lots of times where, where I've had specific deer that I'd watch and, um, and you don't see them move first thing in the morning. They, they may have, they may have gotten to wherever they were going to bed before the sun was up and, uh, and they've parked it somewhere. And even though they're in the middle of a hillside, you know, you, you might know what 300 yards patch of the hillside they're in. You don't see them until they get up and move later in the morning or even maybe around noon. So there's been a lot of deer I found in the middle of the day. And I think, um, if you really are posted up on one deer in one spot and, and you have a high degree of confidence, that's where you're going to find them. Or maybe that's the only place that you can see him of the hillsides that he occupies. Um, you know, in, in some of those instances, your best options to just to be diligent and, and stay in that spot and keep glassing. Yeah. Cool. All right. So Hunter asked, some other questions that I was curious to get your take on. And I know you're not, you know, a biologist expert, whatever, but I know that you pay attention to things like this. So I'm just curious to get your take. So he transitioned his email and he says, the second question is about the harsh winters. He says he's from the Southeast and he doesn't experience the winters like they've had out West, but he's wondering how does recent harsh winters affect the deer and elk populations? How long does it take for them to rebound? How may states respond to the harsh winters, such as decreasing tag numbers, um, et cetera? And then he also mentions, I'm assuming some hunters may rush to other parts of the state or hunt completely different states, again, indicating different areas that weren't hit as hard by the winters. Um, so again, there's a lot there. We could talk for hours about that. Yeah. But on, I guess just let's put it this way for you, Dione like these harsh winters and areas, what does that mean to you personally as someone who want to loves to hunt mule deer? So I'm, I'm definitely not a biologist, but I do pay a lot of attention to this and have given it, given it a lot of thought and, and have recently actually listened to a number of different biologists that, that have uh, confirmed a lot of the things I've thought for a long time. Um, just looking specifically at, at a unit I, I I'm pretty well acquainted with in central Idaho. Um, a lot of these deer have hard winters every winter. Uh, and, and a lot of the survivability component comes down to one thing and it's, it's how good of shape do they go into winter? Um, and that's something that, that, you know, I've starting to hear people talk about, but I'd never heard people talk about it before. Um, we can have a really, really hard winter. And if the deer go into it very fat and in really good condition, they may be fine. I'm not saying that's the case for this winter. And there's some areas that got hit really, really hard. But if the overwinter temperatures aren't, you know, ridiculously cold all winter long, if if uh, if the temperatures are reasonable and they just have a bunch of snow on the ground, the deer seem to still do pretty well in in some areas, um, even with really marginal winter range. Um, it seems like some of these deer can do really well. That said, um, really deep snow with really prolonged cold, especially if there was a layer of ice formed on the ground before the snow got on top of it so that the, the deer can dig to feed pretty well. But if, if the, if there's a layer of ice on top of whatever feed they're trying to get to, it's just a more of a calorie expenditure than what they're really getting out of some of the feed. And, and what you end up seeing then is they'll eat, you know, things like willow bark and that there's almost no nutrition in it, but it's essentially just keeping their stomach going so that when it does green up in the spring, they can, they can start to eat again without having the green feed kill them. But, um, 
there's a lot that goes into that. And, and some areas are going to see historic winter loss, uh, especially in the like Southeast Idaho, Wyoming, uh, Northeast Utah and Northwest Colorado. They're, they're, they're taking it pretty hard, but again, those deer, um, just what I've, what I've learned from, uh, biologists, those deer in that area, some of them were historic levels, uh, of fat reserves going into this winter. So, um, you know, it's, I, I don't think it's going to be as catastrophic as it could have been for sure. Um, that said, there there are going to be a lot less animals on the landscape. Um, talking with some friends I have over in, in southwestern Wyoming, it sounds like they think as much as 50% of that deer herd could die, which which is horrible. But the thing I think we have to look forward to coming out of this is we've just switched from an El Nino to a La Nina cycle supposedly again this is all just things i've heard i'm not i'm not any kind of a researcher but uh, that's going to bring bring a lot more moisture to the northwest and and part of our limitation these last few years for rebuilding our deer herds from the winter we had in 16 17 is that we've been in a historic drought so when you have drought conditions like that you have a diminished carrying capacity across the west so the, the deer just won't rebound. You're not going to have does carrying two fawns. You're going to have higher fawn mortality because the fawns that are on the landscape are malnourished or, or, you know, less than optimally nourished. And they're more likely to die in their first year by, by a large margin. So um, this winter is pretty catastrophic, but I think we're going to have a great opportunity to rebuild over the next few years. And if we have good moisture through, you know, through winter and then spring and fall, and we don't have another catastrophic winter in the next year or two. I think, I think things are going to look pretty good long-term. That said, in, in the near term, there are going to be a lot less deer on the landscape, but I think the reality of it is that the deer that guys really want to hunt are going to be the ones that are going to survive. So the people who do still get tags in the units where they're, they're likely to cut tags, not necessarily in Idaho, cause they've already issued them for this year. They might have a response next year. Um, but, you know, we're always a year or two behind in Idaho as far as fishing game being able to respond just the way what they set seasons yeah, and the way they so issue early. tags. But but in, in states like Wyoming, I think there's still going to be some really special deer come out of that region G, region H area, some of those southern units. Um, like I said, the, the strongest deer are going to be the ones that made it through this, and they're going to have less competition for the, uh, the abundance of resources that they're going to have this year. So you may be looking at less deer if you're able to get a tag in those units. Uh, but it, there's a higher likelihood of the deer you're seeing being one that you'd like to shoot too. So it's hard to, it's hard to say on that end um, as far mm-hmm. as whether it's right or not, but um, yeah, I don't know. What, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I, I was excited to hear from you on it, Deone. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're far more the expert than me. I mean, I do think that, um, you know, I think this is an oversimplification, simplification, but obviously I just think there's cycles, right? Like there's, there's mm-hmm. cycles that have existed for a long time. And clearly I think there's effects that we have in the modern day of how we manage game, obviously how we hunt game, loss of habitat from things like that. But in terms of pure weather cycles, I think there has been bad cycles and uh, with our ability and proactive approach at least in in some states to help the wildlife through some of this like i think there's a mm. there's a lot of hope in a lot of ways you know yeah one other thing that i uh 
I, I guess in reading that, I thought I might mention on uh, that's kind of unique as, in as far as how how deer are able to rebound. Um, historically, we've we've had much much more deer and much less elk. At least uh, at least in central Idaho, I can't speak as much to the other states, but it, it seems like when we have more of an abundance of elk on the landscape regardless of competition for, for the same resources. Um, I, I don't know. I'm of the opinion that when, when there's a lot more elk, even if we have, uh, a, we'll have a big winter kill, let's say with, with deer, um, you would historically have more of a fluctuation following that where your predator population would, would dwindle somewhat. And it seems like, um, we don't have that as much because elk are obviously much more, uh, resilient when it comes to, to winter loss. Um, and, and I'm of the opinion that now when we have these big swings in, in deer population, the elk population stays kind of stable. Your predators that are historically going after deer will seem to sustain themselves on elk. And, uh, and I think that that does add into making it harder for the deer herd to rebound because you don't have that loss in predators on the landscape and, uh, and their preferred meals you know for mountain lions especially is going to be deer um and i think that's kind of affecting our ability to rebound which is why part of why i think the the deer herds across the west have been doing so poorly but um yeah i don't know there's a lot that goes into it and it's it's really hard to point a, a finger at any one thing but i've never thought about it that way and now I'm, that gives me something to think about. Do you know how I like it? <laughs> There's too many things to think about. <laughs> yeah, no, there is, man. Oh, yeah. cool. Well, I appreciate it, dude. How's, uh, so this is again, like we'll take a left turn and wrap all that up, but you were, um, you're involved with planning the death hike this year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> how are yeah. you thinking about that, man? How's training going? Stuff like that. Um, I'm terrified of it. Um, so I've been, I've been training harder than I've ever trained in my life. Um, D Dan Solzman's, uh, helping me plan it too. I, I don't know if anybody knows, knows him from, you know, I'm, you guys rag on him from time to time, I think in the podcast too, but, um, yeah, he, uh, he's kind of done more of the mapping on it. And then I've, I've done a lot of the communication and, and planning with the group and, and what he's got figured up is, uh, I, in my assessment, I think it's going to be the hardest death hike yet. It's I'm, I'm really intimidated by it. So it's been a great motivator for me to, to train really hard and, and be consistent. Well, that's a different story for a different day. We'll see how that goes, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited about it. I like, uh, I like having something out in front of me that motivates me a lot. So it's, it's really exciting. I like the yeah. challenge. Agreed. Cool. Well, I was telling you before we hit record on this one that, uh, you didn't know this, but we have some plans for a new podcast series coming later this year, and it's something I want you a part of. So listeners okay. expect to hear from Dione again, uh, but thanks for joining us today, man. Yeah, I'll try and ramble less next time. I just I have, I have so many thoughts, and they're not, uh, they're, they're not all fully formed, but <laughs> I've, all fully I've thought baked, about man. them a lot. <laughs> no, it's good stuff. Yeah. yeah, sounds good, Mark. Well, that is a wrap on this episode for now. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Again, a lot more to come. You can hear about the upcoming Death Hike, this new Backpack Hunt Breakdown series that I'm super excited about. 
All that is happening in this new month of July of 2023, as well as the giveaway. Don't forget to go to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast to get entered and to win the Outdoor Vitals Ventus hoodie. Go check that out. Also be sure to hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive all the future episodes automatically, as always, for free. Thank you for doing that. We'll talk to you soon.